Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Welcome to episode one of the Parley podcast. This is your host, Chantal Mayer Crittenden. I hemmed and hawed for a while about which episode I was going to start with on this podcast because I recorded a couple of episodes uh, kind of back to back. And I, I chose this particular one because I think it really sets the stage for what this podcast is going to be about. Uh, essentially, communication using language, be it talking, understanding, writing, reading, as well as communication in social contexts, reading other people's cues and knowing all about social etiquette. And so my first guest will talk about her challenges after a brain injury and how if you have any of these modalities of language taken away because of a brain injury, or, or it could be for another reason, it will have an impact on your life. So I invite the listeners to imagine what it might be like to wake up tomorrow and you lose the ability to communicate in one form or another, be it uh, orally or you have a hard time understanding, or like our first guest, have a hard time in social contexts. So Keep this in mind, and I hope you will enjoy this very first episode. I did run into a few difficulties with the recording. There's a bit of white noise that you'll hear in the background, and then towards the end, you hear a bit of static. This is just part of the process of me learning how to do all of this, so please bear with me. Thanks for your patience. I'll be sure to rectify that for the next episodes. Okay, so good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a nice cold day here in Sudbury. It is January and uh, it's actually minus 41 with the wind chill this morning. So it's a little little chilly, but uh, that's okay. We're nice and warm in here. And I have a guest here with me today, Ashley Tyndall. Um, now, Ashley has had a brain injury a few years ago and she's actually agreed to share her story with us. I'm very, very um, happy that she is with us and that she agreed to do this. I feel very fortunate to be to have this opportunity to talk to Ashley. So good morning, Ashley. Good morning. What's it like in Guelph? Is it freezing or? Um, it is also cold, not as cold as where you are. Um, <laughs> the sun is shining and I find that always helps. Absolutely. Uh, I, I got a good dose of vitamin D this weekend despite the cold through the window, so that's good. <laughs> Okay, so maybe Ashley, we can start by having you tell us a little bit about your story, starting from from when it all began back in 2000. Absolutely, yeah. So in the summer of 2000, I was in a very serious car accident. The driver of the vehicle I was in was distracted and crossed onto the other side of the road. There was a loaded dump truck coming towards us, and we were on a bridge, so there was nowhere for it to go. The passenger side got most of the impact. I was the backseat passenger. I was airlifted to Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. I was in a coma for 12 days. I have brain injury, low vision. I shattered my right elbow. The list of injuries goes on, but what's more important is how those injuries impact my day-to-day -day life. For now, example, maybe just, sorry, just let us know. So you were uh, airlifted to Sick Kids. So how old were you when this happened? I was 17. Okay. It was summer after grade 11. Okay. And I ended up actually missing a year of school 
because of um, my recovery time in the hospital and at rehab as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so some of the things like the impact, for example, because of my low vision, I've lost my driver's license. Because of my brain injury, I have high levels of fatigue and I can't work full time. I also have communication challenges as a result of my brain injury. Um, the list goes on, but I try and still greet each day with a smile and um, yeah, enjoy the sunshine that we get. That's so a good after, attitude to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after being discharged from sick kids, then I went to Blurview Rehab in Toronto for a while. Then I was discharged home and I had to work with a lot of therapists to uh, help me throughout my recovery. One of the therapists I work with was Sheila McDonald, who is a speech language pathologist. She taught me a lot of strategies to help with my communication difficulties because of my brain injury. So after I returned home, then I went to high school. I resisted all of the accommodations that were given to me because even though they would help me, they made me stand out. So my for some people who may not know uh, about these accommodations, so what kind of accommodations would a student have access to after um, going through what you went through with the brain injury? So for example, because of my low vision, I found it easier to have material in large print. So they were able to get my textbook in large print. However, it came in four volumes and took up my entire desk. Yeah. So when I'm wanting to just do nothing but fit in, having a textbook that large doesn't help with that goal. <laughs> I was able to have note takers in class. I was able to write my exams in a separate room to have um, access to large print and I was able to use the computer, different things like that. And I also went part-time. I only took two classes okay. instead of the full. So I graduated high school and then I wanted to try university. I knew I would regret it if I never gave it a try. And so I went to the University of Guelph where I was more willing to accept the accommodations, partly because the class sizes were bigger and I felt like I could still kind of fit in and that they wouldn't make me stand out as much. And I think, I think in the university setting, it's also um, more common perhaps and students are a little bit more accepting of it, would you say? Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Um, and I felt like it was just an opportunity for me to succeed rather than an opportunity for me to look different. For sure, for sure. <laughs> yep. Good point. Yeah. So when I was at university, I joined a group called the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And while I was part of that group, um, I ended up being the retreat coordinator. And then I was on the leadership team. And it just really helped with increasing my self-confidence following the brain injury because at first, I wanted to do anything, I needed a therapist involved. Mm -hmm. There'd be some sort of assessment done and all the, you know, pros and cons of, for example, can she learn how to ride a bike again and stuff like that. Whereas with this group that I was part of, they just had confidence in me and felt that I could do whatever task was set in front of me. And so that really helped increase my own self-confidence throughout my recovery and just to realize that, you know what, I have a lot of challenges but I do still have a lot to offer the world. And uh, so that was one of the things that I really enjoyed while being at university. So it you were able to do all of this without seeking help from all of these therapists, the team of therapists, like physiotherapists and occupational therapists and speech language pathologists and, and so on and so forth. Is that right? Absolutely. And it was just really refreshing to be able to do something um, without all that support. It was great. I was very thankful for that support being available. 
But I also wanted to be a person outside of all of my therapist appointments and all that. So this helped me to just embrace that part of of who I now was and, and what my abilities were. Okay. So it took me 10 years to graduate university, but I did. And it was definitely a commitment. Uh, it felt at times like it was more of a career than yeah, <laughs> just going sure. to, to school. I graduated with a Bachelor of Applied Science with a major in Child, Youth, and Family. And I'm also a registered early childhood educator. Well, congratulations. That's an amazing accomplishment after everything you went through. So hats off to you. That's great. Thank you. It took a lot of work and a lot of support, but I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and made it happen. Mm -hmm. My mom and I are currently writing a book about the ups and downs of life after brain injury. Mm -hmm. A whole new adventure that I'm going on. Neither my mom or I consider ourselves authors. But God's given us a story to tell, and we hope to inspire others through our journey and just for them to know that they're not alone. Well, and that's why you have editors and a team behind you, right? <laughs> of course. So tell us a bit about this book. What's it called, and when can we expect to, to see this? Well, the when you can expect to see it is a fantastic question. <laughs> yeah, to be determined. Um, the book is called The Way I See Things, and my mom is writing from the perspective of the caregiver and parent. And I'm writing from the perspective of the survivor. So we just want to give insight into what it was like for our that has shaped our lives. Hopefully inspire others to, yeah, that they know they're not alone in things. And if they're going through struggles or depression or anything through tra- trauma, that that's okay. Um, that you just, like I say, put one foot in front of the other and hope to still have a smile on your face when you come through the other side. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing this. And I'm sure, um, you know, for for a lot of people who work in rehabilitation, we learn about all of this in school. But it's always, I find, better when you can get the perspective of someone who has lived through it. Um, so it'll be uh, great to have this as a resource, not only for other families who are going through this, but also professionals who are training to work with people like you. I mean, it's, it's difficult to imagine what it must be like to to have to to overcome all of these difficulties absolutely yeah and it's also because of that i've joined an advocacy group and we're just we're fighting for the rights of individuals with brain injury following a car accident a lot of the legislature and everything like that is changing and there aren't as much access to resources like therapists and um things like that throughout your recovery And so we're trying to do the best we can to use our experiences to help benefit those in the future who will go through similar experiences. That's great. Now, you talked about a lot of your a lot of your difficulties and even in your book description, you'd say, you know, how to overcome some of these challenges. So other than um, obviously the vision issues that you currently still have, what other difficulties arose from the brain injury? So there were different things, for example, I shattered my right elbow, uh, I had yeah, brain injury, I had a cerebral spinal fluid leak, which has um, required onwards of 10 surgeries to repair. I've had meningitis twice because of that. And one of the other things because of my brain injury is that I have communication difficulties, um, both verbal and written. I had to relearn a lot of social cues and how to communicate successfully with other people just in everyday life. Yeah, so what, 
you know, and I think that that's kind of the reason for this podcast, and I explained that in my, my very first um, episode, is that people take for granted what communication entails. So maybe could you touch a bit on that? What, what were those social communication difficulties that you encountered early on? So the biggest struggle for me was to relearn social cues and how to communicate respectfully with someone else. I used to be, before the accident, I used to be really shy. Now I'm very verbose and talkative. I dominate conversations, which is not fair to who I'm speaking with. I focus on myself rather than asking how the other person is doing and what's going on in their life. I had word-finding difficulties, which was often just embarrassing. And I would interrupt people and often not stay on topic. All those communication challenges also extended into my writing. I was working on my grade 12 English class to complete through correspondence and all of those things that I just mentioned also expressed themselves in my written communication. When I got tired, which was very often, that fatigue would exacerbate all of my communication difficulties. So the more tired I was, the more verbose I was. And yeah, just had a difficult time implementing any strategies that I had. What would you say were other people's reactions to to these difficulties? Would they tend to remove themselves from the conversation or did you find it impacted your social network of friends? Like how did you how did you kind of know that this was an issue? So I was very fortunate in the sense that my friends and family were extremely supportive following the accident that I was in and they did anything they could to support me even if that meant listening to me for an hour while I <laughs> rambled on about this or that. And so um, although that was supportive, it was when I started working with Sheila McDonald, my speech language pathologist, that I started to become aware of these uh, communication difficulties I was having because they were brought to my attention. And, and you're so, probably thinking, oh no, I've been doing this for, <laughs> for quite some yeah. time. <laughs> and so sometimes like, I remember for example, this was when I was um, farther along in my recovery and therapy that somebody came to the house and I hadn't seen them in a while. So they were like a new audience to me. And I just talked and talked and talked. And after they left, I remember looking at my mom who was also there for the visit and I said to her, don't say a thing mom or I'll start crying. Because I knew what I had done, but I didn't feel I, I had the ability or skills to stop myself That's from talking very interesting. or interrupting or so it caused just a lot of frustration and embarrassment because mm-hmm. I, I got to a point where even though my conversation partner whether it was my friend or my mom or my dad or brother or whoever it was was very gracious towards me I still I was aware of what I was doing and how it would come across, I imagine, is selfish. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't ask them how they were doing. I didn't let them say anything. I didn't <laughs> let them like have sort of any influence on the conversation. And you know, so, you, for, for you, the main reason, or the reason, was because of the brain injury. But I'm sure you know, people listening out there have all had an, an occasion where they had a conversation with someone who monopolized the conversation and so I think we can all relate and I think it's amazing that even though you couldn't stop yourself while it was happening that after the fact you were aware of it and thought oh no like I I did it again kind of thing right? Absolutely and I think that um, emotion that was involved there 
was one of the key factors in me and my desire to learn strategies to overcome it. So when Sheila, my speech uh, therapist, offered those strategies, I was receptive to them and I wanted to, it was not, it was not easy and it took a lot of work because mm-hmm. it was relearning something. Yeah. Um, but I was receptive to it because I wanted to avoid those embarrassing circumstances. Sure. And I wanted to be respectful to those around me and, and let them have um, like an active part of the conversation. Yeah. Now for those who aren't too familiar with the brain, um, what part of your brain was most affected by the accident? So it was primarily my frontal lobe uh, was the part of my brain that was injured. Mm-hmm. And it definitely depends on what area of your brain is injured to what effects you have, like what symptoms you have. Mm-hmm. And so because of the frontal lobe brain injury, that is one of the areas I believe that affects communication mm-hmm. and things like filtering and stuff like that. And so that communication was one of the struggles that I had because of the area of my brain that was. Yeah, yeah, did. absolutely. And that's the thing that we often see with people who have a frontal lobe brain injury is that ability, kind of having that little voice inside your head that says, okay, you know, stop talking. It's the other person's turn or um, that, that becomes very difficult to do. And you have to focus on it and mentally try to remember to, to give that turn taking and whatnot. Absolutely. And one of the things as well that's so challenging about brain injury is that it's invisible. Mm-hmm. If someone looks at me, they don't, oh, she must have had brain injury. That's why she's so talkative or that's why she's not letting me have a turn mm-hmm. to say anything. It's invisible. And so that really played a role as well in, like, my friends and family, of course, knew about my brain injury. But if I was communicating with someone else that didn't have that understanding of what it meant to have frontal lobe brain injury, then... I think sometimes there's a lack of understanding of why I was behaving in that way, like why I was so talkative and all that. Yeah, so I think raise a good awareness point. Is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you were saying um, that, you know, some of those difficulties were to, to take turns and whatnot. So what are some of the strategies that you learned in some of your speech and language therapy sessions to help you with that? One of the strategies that I still use today, even though it's 18 years after my accident, is the idea of bottom line. So if I started cluttering conversation with unnecessary details, then Sheila would ask me, Ashley, what's the bottom line? And it would help me to focus on, okay, what am I trying to get across here? What is the main point of what I'm saying? And be able to stay on track with that. So now there'll be times when my mom will just say to me, Hey, Ashley, what's the bottom line? And I'll know, and it's just a good reminder for me that I'm getting off topic and, you know, including other things that aren't relevant to the conversation. So, yeah, it helps me stay on focus. Another one that I used was the idea of putting my hands together, my fingers intertwined with each other to remind me of the 50-50 rule. And so when I say something, then it's the other person's turn. So my hand... My right hand represented me, my left hand represented my conversation partner. So just that visual cue of my turn, right, now they need a turn to talk, mm-hmm. my turn. And, and, you know, that can involve asking questions to give them an opportunity to talk as well. And that's something that most of us take for granted. I mean, we don't necessarily think about that when we're conversing with someone. Okay, I've said this, now it's their turn. It comes naturally. So I can imagine it must be an added challenge for you when you're in the middle of a conversation to think, oh, did I take, 
too many turns or, you know, you have that extra layer to monitor during the conversation, all the while paying attention to what they're saying and adding to the conversation. So it's, it must definitely make it a bit more challenging to, to keep. Absolutely. And one of the other things too, to keep in mind is that I have low vision. I can't necessarily see some of the visual cues that my conversation partner is giving me. And so I don't have that feedback as well. So it's just another, yeah, another way. And that's a reason why I get so tired because mm -hmm. having a conversation with someone, which seems like a simple thing, you just, you know, put some words together, they'll do the same. And, but it's exhausting when I have to keep in mind all of those social cues and reminders and strategies that I have. Oh, for sure. And again, the low vision is something that is invisible. People don't recognize it, you know, when they're exactly. looking at you. So there's so many things that we um, are constantly aware of while we're communicating, looking at the other person's body language, listening to what they're saying, taking turns. Um, so it's, it must have been basically, an, I, I imagine, a bit of a nightmare when you realize that you had lost those those competencies to automatically do all of those things. Absolutely, yeah. And it was one of those things that you kind of think communicating is like learning to ride a bike. Once you know how to communicate, then that's it. You're good for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And then something like brain injury happens and no, wait a second, I need to go back and I need to relearn all of those skills when I'm 17 mm -hmm. <laughs> instead of when I'm one or two when you're initially learning them. Yeah, when you're 17 and also probably trying to figure out who you are as an individual and what you want to do in life and, uh, you know, kind of create your own independent self. Absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the other strategies, my communication challenges, as I mentioned, extend into my writing. And so I was trying to finish my grade 12 English class and often you're given a word count with an assignment. And I really struggled to keep within that word count or, to be honest, even answer the question at hand. So Sheila McDonald, my speech therapist, gave me the idea of a thought box. So it was just sort of like a chart on the page that just provided structure to the answer and helped me to keep on topic, helped me to keep within the word count, and actually answer <laughs> the question that was at hand. So the bottom line, the 50-50 rule and the thought boxes, I would say were three of the most impactful strategies that I was given. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that was crucial though was that my mom was so involved in my recovery. Sheila involved my mom with knowing what the strategies are, would get feedback from her, and it just provided consistency for me that I wasn't just implementing those strategies while I was at speech therapy. They were also, I was getting the same reinforcement and feedback when I was at home in day-to-day -day situations. So I feel that that definitely helped me with my recovery. And I think that's a very good point because a lot of people tend to think that a lot of the recovery will happen during therapy. But therapy is just there to provide you with, like you said, those strategies. And it's up to the individual and their family members and friends to kind of use those and put those into practice in everyday life. So it's not what is done an hour or two a week in therapy that's going to make all the, the necessary changes. So that's amazing that you had your mom as a, as a partner to help you with all of those strategies. I, I imagine sometimes, like you said, when you had that, that new um, or the person that you hadn't seen in a while come back, you know, you said to your mom, don't tell me anything. So I imagine sometimes it might have been a bit frustrating to 
to constantly have be monitored? Did you feel that way that you constantly had someone monitoring what you were saying? Absolutely. It was one of those things that in the same way that as long as I was awake and my eyes were open, I knew I had low vision. As long as I was awake and I was interacting with other individuals, I had communication difficulties. Mm-hmm. And the the thing that's ironic is the more tired I would get, the more those communication struggles would express themselves and the more emotional I would get about it. So right. some days were, were tough trying to get through social circumstances without getting frustrated or embarrassed or and just continue to be encouraged that I am learning strategies bit by bit I can overcome this and I will relearn these social strategies and I will be able to communicate effectively. Does it come more naturally to you now? Definitely. Yep. There are certain strategies that have become almost like second nature to me that I'm probably not even consciously aware that I'm using them. Mm -hmm. They're just part of my day-to-day life. And I think that you know, the brain is a very powerful thing and it does repair itself and it does create new neurons and it, it's, it's very plastic. So that's a great thing that you're able to, to not have to concentrate so hard every single time. Absolutely. Now, you know, after having been through all of this, what does communication mean to you today? So to me, communication is a way of expressing your thoughts and ideas to someone else. Verbal and written communication are two of the primary ways, but there are a lot of different ways that people communicate, such as braille or sign language, depending on what your abilities are and your preferences as well. I think communication is as unique as each individual is in the way that they communicate, their preferences, their style, um, and it's just it's something that's often taken for granted. So, you know, most people just think of communication as the words that come out of your mouth and, you know, having a small talk at the cashier at the Walmart or whatnot. But like you said, there is so much more than just the words that come out of our mouth. Absolutely. It's and another example for me is when I would meet somebody with my low vision, I couldn't see if they were wanting to shake my hand. And so... I would sometimes not shake their hand and that would be embarrassing. Or if I was at university and I was walking on campus and a friend would walk past me or somebody I knew and I didn't see them and I just walked right past. And that's a form of communication. Mm -hmm. They would have felt that I was ignoring them or didn't want to acknowledge them in a social setting. Whereas that wasn't it at all. I didn't see them. And so there's communication and then there's the uh, interpretation of that communication as well. Yeah, not for sure. What you say, it's, it's how it's interpreted as well. I find it fascinating that you have all of this insight now. Um, so, which leads me to my next question. What positive outcomes have come for this experience? I mean, that's obviously one of them, the, that, that insightfulness. Absolutely. So, being able to successfully graduate from university was, I think, a lot more meaningful for me than the average student. Mm-hmm. Not because, well, it's just that I put so much work into it and had to have, like, it was so much more than just going to class and taking tests. Yeah, for it was sure. An oppor- it was an opportunity for me to uh, relearn a lot of things. I am able to be socially involved now in the church that I go to and in social interactions with my friend. All in all, I have enough confidence to function successfully 
in society and have learned that you can go through trauma and still have a smile on your face. That we all have struggles that we face on a daily basis and we can overcome those struggles as long as we have the right strategies. That's amazing. I like that. We can go through trauma and still have a smile on our face. That's a very powerful thing to remember for those who are living through those initial stages of brain injury and all the challenges that you faced. Absolutely. And, and, and you're now writing a book. I mean, that's <laughs> something to acknowledge for sure. Absolutely. And one of the other things too is that as I mentioned, I was really shy growing up. And now that I'm talking, I find public speaking a lot easier. And I think that that's kind of a unique circumstance because that helps me be an advocate for other individuals, helps me to share my story, whether it's through talking about the book or my experience, and just be that voice for people who feel that they don't have one right now. Yeah, that's a great gift that you're able to give to others who are either going through this or who know nothing about it and kind of make people aware that if you're talking to someone in the community or wherever it may be and they maybe seem a bit off, then to consider that maybe they are struggling to communicate for very valid reasons and not just because they're selfish or they are only thinking about what they have to say. Now, what would the take-home message to our listeners be around communication and one's outlook on life when communication is not that easy? I would say that communication is so much more than just putting words together in a sentence, that there are social cues to pick up on, and that communication is something that is often taken for granted, but that should be really valued and appreciated in a day-to-day circumstance. You know, that reminds me of texting because oftentimes when we're texting someone, we don't have social cues. And that's when we often interpret interpret those messages wrongfully and it's quite frustrating. So those little facial expressions and vocal intonations are so important. Absolutely. And that's, again, where it's not just what you are trying to communicate, but how it's interpreted, how it's received by that other individual to make the overall communication experience. And often it goes well and smoothly, but often it doesn't. And so I think we need to do our best to raise awareness of why somebody might have communication difficulties, whether it be brain injury or um, whatever, just to help have an understanding and empathy from individuals. Yeah, absolutely. So what are your plans for the future then? What, what do you foresee the next five years, 10 years? Where is life gonna take you? Um, the ideal is finishing the book first. And then after that journey has kind of come to an end, then I hope to get into the helping profession in some way. I am educated in working with children. And so I, I, that is an area I particularly enjoy, but I just wanna give back and help other people that are going through difficulties, whatever that may be. I feel that that is kind of where my heart's at right now, is to give back and to help other individuals to feel I'm making a difference. So That's, that's great, and I think you have a lot to give back and a lot of experience, and you've been through it. So it's you have that added personal touch that a lot of rehab professionals don't, don't have because they've never been through it. So that's fantastic, and I Wish you all the luck, and I hope that we will cross paths again 
Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me this morning and for being a guest on this podcast. Um, I'm sure the listeners will have a much better appreciation for what brain injury entails and, and how it can have an impact on communication. So thank you so much. And I hope that you, you will find yourself in a setting somewhere where you're able to help people with whatever difficulties they may have. That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to share my story and just to help raise awareness for what communication looks like for each individual. And I'll be looking for your book and maybe you can be a repeat guest once it comes out and talk to us a bit about it. Wonderful. It sounds like a plan. Okay. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was a great interview. I wanted to take a few minutes just to talk a little bit about brain injury and um, how the specific location of the brain injury can have an impact on communication. Um, so typically when there's a brain injury, we call it a communication um, or cognitive communication disorder because any part of the brain that is affected by a brain injury can cause some form of communication disorder, but the location of the injury will kind of determine what symptoms that person may um, express. Um, so the frontal lobe is responsible for what's called executive functions, and those are basically what allow us to go about our day-to-day -day lives, planning what we need to do to get to our classes on time, to take notes, to plan uh, how to get home, what bus route to take or what road to take, to organize ourselves, to organize our notes and our, our schedule. Um, it's also responsible somewhat for memory and attention, you know, trying to ignore all of the surrounding stimuli that may be um, having an impact on how we're able to learn. Also, initiating a conversation or like Ashley was saying, taking turns, you know, when to stop talking and picking up on those subtle cues that our listener is giving to us. So there is so much involved in interactions with others and the frontal lobe is kind of like I was saying during the episode is kind of like that little voice that we have that monitors us and so it's that constant monitoring of those appropriate turn changes and um, reading another person's you know verbal expressions to know when they didn't understand what we were saying or when they might be getting less interested in what we're saying add to that like Ashley was saying a visual impairment, and that is even, you know, tenfold. Um, difficulties are tenfold in that case. And so depending on where the brain injury is, you will see different, um, different symptoms. And so it's not everybody who has a brain injury that will have the same symptoms that Ashley was, was expressing. But like I said, most of the time there will be some form of cognitive communication disorder um, whether it's that initiation and, and topic maintenance and self-monitoring, or it could be you know, different perception of what's going on around us, um, difficulty understanding language, and so to speak. So a lot of different things can, can be affected by a brain injury. So just a little bit of tidbit information there. Now, if you're interested in brain injury or would like to have more information on uh, brain injury and what you can expect as services out there in the community, I invite you to check out a few really helpful websites. There's the Ontario Brain Injury Association, which is obia.ca. There is also the Brain Injury Canada uh, website, which is biac-aclc.ca. 
There is also BrainLine, which is another great website, brainline.org. Um, there's also Communication Disabilities Access Canada, which is um, a website where you can find a database of communication assistance that can actually help you communicate if you do have communication uh, difficulties. And this is not only related to brain injury, but any type of communication difficulty. So you can reach out to a person that may be able to assist you at meetings, appointments, and public events. Um, and so there is a database there with names of people who have gone through the training and who are able to help you. And there is a small fee associated to this, but it's not kind of a flat rate. It, it kind of depends on the region. So I do invite you to check out this website, cdacanada.com. So those are really uh, great um, resources that may be of interest to you. There's also the Ontario Association of Speech-Language Pathologists and Audiologists who have some information on their website. That's osla.org. And I think that's, uh, in a nutshell, a good start for information. There's also the International Brain Injury Association that I didn't talk about. So internationalbrain.org. So feel free to look at those sites. And again, if you need more uh, information or if you'd like to ask a few questions or if you have comments, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can check out my website at theparleypodcast.com. There is a spot there where you can add your comments or questions and I'll be glad to um, answer your questions or, or chat a bit more with you about this. I will put all those websites on the show notes on the website, theparleypodcast.com, so you don't have to jot them down. They'll be written there for you. And any other links that um, I may have forgotten to mention that might be useful. Thanks again for tuning in today. I hope that you were just as intrigued by Ashley's story as I was when I heard about her uh, and all that she has to offer and all that she's actually had to uh, overcome to be where she is today, almost 19 years post-injury. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I try to put a lot of information there about communication and um, the struggles that people may face. Be sure to listen to the next episode where I'll talk to Alexandra Cross. She is a PhD student at Western University in London, Ontario, and she will actually talk to us about how language and math are interrelated. How, you say? Well, Make sure you tune in to find out more. Take care.